Tonight's talk is on compassion, and the Pali word for this is karuna, and compassion is considered to be one of the four divine abodes, and last week we talked about metta, our loving kindness, which is the uh, first of those, and then next week we'll, we'll be finishing up on them. Uh, just so I know, who was here last week? Pretty good. <laughs> okay. Um, what I'd like to do is review a little bit about metta, our loving kindness, because uh, for myself I can never reflect enough upon it. It is always helpful for me, and because the a lot of the uh, principles and spirit of metta are very akin to compassion or, or karuna. To start with by saying that all these states, these divine abodes, are just what those words mean. That when we open to these states, it's quite a heavenly feeling. It's very pleasant. And the key is to know that they exist within us. It's not like we're cultivating something that isn't there, but rather the seeds of these uh, states of heart-mind are within all beings, and it's part of our potential to bring our intention to them, and by bringing the light of our awareness to them, to wake them up. Loving-kindness is that sense of connectedness that we have with all beings. When we are in a state of loving-kindness, there's a feeling of care towards all of life. It's considered to be a factor of cohesion or bonding and binding. So it's got that quality that when we bring our heart-minds and open in loving-kindness, there's a sense of really being in relationship with it all. And that includes ourself. It's unconditional acceptance. Last week I talked a bit about the shadow side of loving-kindness that we're the ocean of being, the ocean of, or the water of loving-kindness is love, the waves of attachment naturally arise, and that's the shadow side. So that when our love is contracted by fear in any way, we love someone but we're afraid we won't be loved back or that we're not good enough, then attachment comes and there's a whole array of expectations of desire and grasping and then getting let down that can happen out of that. So that's considered suffering. Here we have what gives us the most joy in the world is love and then love, when contracted by fear, creates suffering. What's important to remember when we're doing metta is that sometimes by offering metta, and for those of you that haven't been here, to offer loving-kindness means to start with oneself and then move on to a friend or a loved one, and then eventually all beings, is to offer prayers, our wishes for well-being. It comes from a place of care. Now what we find sometimes is we're feeling so contracted, we've got <clears throat> enough anger or sense of separation or distance that when we start the practice, it feels almost hypocritical or else just plain mechanical. It's like we're, our hearts aren't into it. And just as a kind of reassurance to those of you that have been exploring metta, that's normal and fine. <laughs> Sometimes we're in the mood and it just opens us right up and it really brings out of us what was really ready to be expressed, which is a lot of care. But other times what we discover is the practice itself is a mirror for where we feel separate. And at that time, it's quite valuable to go ahead and continue the offering and know that underneath the sense of separation, we have a longing to connect. Our intention in doing metta is to open ourselves up so even if we're not feeling open, just acting out of that intention itself draws us towards that which we long for. I 
think one of the most universal principles I know is that all humans want to be happy. We all want to be happy. And for most of us, when we kind of unpeel the onion, you know, when we peel the onion and kind of get to the core, that happiness has to do with a sense of true connection or harmony with the rest of the universe. So when we offer metta, it's coming out of that longing for happiness, and it helps to to feed that in the deepest way. Our confusion on this earth is that we think that that which gives us pleasure will give us happiness. And I asked you last week to kind of survey where you felt attached. You know, where, where do you end up finding your wants getting um, hooked onto? What person? What activity? What sense of achievement? What goal? We all have them. We all, in some way, misperceive happiness for being, ha- being able to hold on to that which feels pleasant. And then we run into trouble. Because what happens is we get let down because everything changes. We can't control the people that we want to relate to us in certain ways. We can't control ourselves. We don't always act the way we want to. If we're attached to having a certain object look a certain way, it'll get old, it can be destroyed. Everything changes. So whenever we take that longing for connection and attach it to anything specific, we're in for trouble. The beauty of the metta practice is it gently but powerfully brings us back to the source of what brings happiness. It moves us from the realm of attachment, attachment to certain pleasures, certain people, this but not that, back into that place that knows unconditional love, to that part of our being that really intuits our oneness. It reconnects us with that. So the metta practice is a practice of intentionally dropping back into that place of connectedness through offering prayers for ourselves and each other. Now, compassion is that sense of connectedness and care that arises in relationship to suffering. For those of you that were here over the last weeks, we talked about the first noble truth being that suffering exists and that it's pervasive, that we have the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And that part of our humanity is to open and acknowledge in a very direct and honest way the extent of our suffering. That if we can do that with ourselves, we can do it with each other. And out of this acknowledgement or recognition of suffering comes a deep sense of compassion. It's a natural movement of the heart. One description of compassion is the quivering of the heart, or that which makes the heart of the good quiver when others are subjected to suffering. It's that natural response of tenderness in our heart when we perceive pain in others and in ourselves. I'd like to read you from Chogyam Trungpa. This is his description of the warrior's tender heart of sadness. This is a description of compassion. When you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. You find that you are looking into outer space. What are you? Who are you? Where is your heart? If you really look, you won't find anything tangible or solid. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your rib cage and feel for it, there is nothing but tenderness. You feel sore and soft, and if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, 
you feel tremendous sadness. This sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open, exposed. It is the pure, raw heart. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. It is this tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. This quality of tenderness, of compassion, arises when we really listen and when we're willing to be touched. For many of us, we get caught in quite a busy way of being. And so it's not until we quiet down and get off that busy merry-go-round that really the sorrow or suffering within our own being can be heard, can be felt, or that within other beings. But when we do that, when we do get quiet and listen, when we really pay attention, then our spontaneous response to suffering and the pain we encounter is a feeling of mutual resonance and natural connectedness in the face of the universal experience of loss and pain. What's really quite astounding, we all have all these questions about wise action and, and how to decide in a way that's wise in our lives to do this and not that and how to respond to people. What we discover is when we really quiet down and listen, the natural response of our heart is compassion and out of that, out of the care that's intrinsic to that, we naturally take action in a way to benefit other beings. I've never in my own life felt with myself or in anybody else when someone's in a place of compassion that they acted in a way to create more suffering. We just don't do that. Probably each one of you has had that experience of being around someone you know well that's struggling a lot, suffering a lot, and being somewhat shut down to their suffering, and then all of a sudden, for some reason, getting kind of jarred or jolted or something happens in your life and you really pay attention and all of a sudden get it. Wow, that person's really been going through a lot and you soften and open and maybe for the first time are able to respond in a way that's healing. We all have that capacity, but usually we have to break our habit of busyness to be there enough to really get it, to get where someone's at, to really get where we're at ourselves. Kuan Yin is the Bodhisattva of Compassion. Some of you have probably heard her name. And the name actually means listening. I thought that was interesting, that listening is the kind of core root of Kuan Yin. Listening to the cries of the world, that's what this Bodhisattva of Compassion does. Simply listening. And then when we listen, the capacity to let ourselves feel touched by what's there. I recently read a kind of an article written by an American who's a playwright and a journalist, and she'd spent several months in Bosnia. And it was a very powerful article because it it not only described the horrors of what's going on there, but her own process of feeling compassion towards what was happening. And she describes it at the beginning. She was doing these interviews, 
And she really was very task-oriented in the sense of there was so much pain that she used the interviews as a form to keep a distance from the people she was with. She writes, I was hearing the refugees' stories as potential dramas, measuring their words in terms of beats and momentum. This approach made me feel cold, impervious, superior. Then she describes how her defenses began breaking down when she really started to be touched by the cruelty that she was hearing about, about by the rapes. She was with a lot of women that had been subjected to the most merciless rapes, torture, loss of dignity, the death of their parents, the death of their children. What she realized was that it was so horrible that all she could do was try to defend against the pain by keeping this form of being an interviewer and getting their stories. She just came to the recognition that her interviews had to be an interaction that was based on presence and vulnerability. So in a circle of women, she began to meet in circles where people just told their stories in a much more natural way her defenses, identities, and boundaries fell away. Here's what she writes. Melt me, let me dissolve, let me release my hard identity, let me be swallowed by the circle. What circle are you in? What circle of people with the normal range or not normal of suffering and joy? And how much do we all listen? How much do we let go of our identity and our hardness and our edges to really be there? She writes, let me not matter. Let me be homeless, homesick. Please break me. Please make me a toothless, laughing woman, not worrying about my turn, my message, my serving, my creation, my moment. Please make me ready to sit in the circle. So the flowering of compassion happens when there's not quite so much activity around building ourselves, proving ourselves, defending ourselves. And this isn't to judge ourselves for all of that activity. It's absolutely conditioned. It's part of us. But to know that as we quiet some and listen to ourselves and others, there's a deep joy in opening our hearts to what's there. There's a story that I heard about recently about Ashoka, who was one of the great uh, kings of India. And he was quite a warrior, very, very talented, and he, his kingdom was quite large, and he had one final battle that he needed to, to extend his kingdom enough so it would really be productive protected from any infidels, and it was a, a horrible battle. Many, many people were killed, and he, and he was masterful in his tactics, and he was a successful uh, king and, and leader of his troops. After the battle, he walked through the battlefield, and I don't know if that was his habit, but this time he walked through, and he saw so much pain, so many wounded beings, some half alive, some dead, but just the enormity of the suffering somehow or other cracked him. And it said that from that point on, he, ha he didn't have the heart or stomach for battle. He ended up becoming one of the first and great Buddhist uh, kings in India and made his mark in his incredibly enlightened way. And this is not to say that um, Buddhists have not been warriors that created suffering, but he was known first as Ashoka the Wicked, and he became Ashoka the Righteous. And the turning point was when somehow or other the horror and the suffering around him was recognized in a deep way. So for any of us in our lives, it can become a profound and transforming moment when we stop in our tracks and really catch on 
to where suffering is. Sometimes we all of a sudden get it, what our parents have gone through. You know, they, instead of becoming, instead of being distant and offending beings, our loved but distant beings, we really get them just as humans that have suffered, are our partners, are our children. Sometimes we really get jarred into recognizing the suffering of a homeless person that we've passed many times, and all of a sudden there's a look in the eye and we realize this is a real human suffering. The basic quality that allows us to touch suffering is an openness of the heart. So compassion is a heart-mind state that has an opening quality versus a closing quality. It can only be experienced in others. We can only have compassion for others when we've really had compassion for ourselves. So it's based on really having listened and been with ourselves in a full way. Once we've done that some, it can become more of a habit to look closely and see what might be going on in this other being. Last week I encouraged you to do a reflection that I'd like to repeat again, if you will, where you choose someone in your life that you care about that's going through a difficult time. So bring that to mind, if you will. Someone that matters to you that's going through a hard time. And sense what comes up in you if you really pay attention to their experience. Sometimes, depending on where we're at, it's a quite simple, pure state of compassion where we're touched by their pain and we wish them well. But it's also valuable to observe our motivations, our reactivity, as we pay attention to others' suffering. Just as with love and kindness, there's a shadow side to compassion. And the shadow side is a pitying, where we, in, a, in some subtle way, distance ourselves from the other, and they're really an other, and they're different than us, and we feel sorry for them. We have very strong conditioning to have an aversion to pain, whether it's in ourselves or in others. You know what it's like when somebody is in a lot of pain, and sometimes it's just not easy to be there with them, just like it's not easy to be with our own pain. So what do we do? When we have an aversion to suffering or pain within ourselves, we're uncomfortable with it with others, sometimes we ignore it. Or we, we reframe it, oh, it's not so bad, or this will get better, or um, you don't really feel that way. We sometimes judge it. We judge the person for, get it, for wallowing in things. We try to fix it. That's a big one. I know that's a habit of mine that um, I've had a watch for ages of trying to make things better and fix things because I'm so uncomfortable with other people in pain. So this is the shadow. It's called in, in Buddhist terminology, the near enemy of, compass of compassion is to pity or to judge in some way. In my own life, one of uh, friends of our family who I've known since I was a child had a very severe learning disorder, which made it so he was barely functional in terms of schooling, and then as an adult, he's never really found his place. And one of the kind of emotional pieces to his experience is a tremendous amount of shame about him just being kind of a failure in the world. And I've known him since I was very, very young. And even as a young girl, I, I had a hard time being around him because I always felt sorry for him and felt uncomfortable around him. And then when I was a teenager, I tried to, to solve his problems. I was always coming up with suggestions on how things could be better. I mean, it was just chronic. Every time I saw him, I just kind of 
you know, and even before I'd see him, I'd be planning what possibly might help him because I just did not want to sit and be with the, the intensity of his discomfort, his shame, his pain in being alive. And it was quite a powerful thing as an adult. And this happened really coincide a lot with, with um, beginning to do Vipassana or mindfulness practice to just start the practice of being with him not trying to keep it away, not trying to fix it, but just being with his difficulty, his pain. And what I discovered was there was more of a lightness when I wasn't busy trying to fix him. We actually could be amused by the predicament of humans and ourselves and so on because I wasn't so uptight about where he was at. It's not easy to be with intense pain. It's a practice. Another way that we judge is not just, okay, you're in pain and that's bad, but we judge what we consider to be the cause of the pain. And this happens a lot when we feel that parents have abused a child or somebody's mistreated somebody else and what we do is we feel sorry for the person that's suffering and we have a lot of blame towards the perpetrator. Thich Nhat Hanh describes it as our challenge is not only to open to the suffering of a being but open to the suffering of the one that caused the suffering that make sense? That it's not enough just to, just to feel sorry for someone for their pain and to blame. It's just creating more aversion. So you might reflect for a moment. And again, we did this last week, and it can be quite revealing. When you recently might have caused pain to someone else. Just bringing that to mind. When you might have brought cause pain to someone else. And if you can, to sense into your own being what was the state of heart and mind in you that might have led you to, to the behaviors that created the suffering. In other words, what was your own suffering? What was going on in you? Was it fear? Was it hurt? The only reason any of us create suffering in others is if we're suffering ourselves. You might consider now a time someone's hurt you. And this can be quite healing if you're carrying a grudge. and to see if you can look into their beings and sense the suffering in them that might have caused them to behave unskillfully, to behave in a hurtful way. This is a practice. This little reflection is something that actually can become a habit of heart and mind that can change our lives from lives where we're judging and creating separations to one where we're looking for what's true in another being and seeking connections. This is Solzhenitsyn. If it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his or her own heart? Even the word evil makes it sound like something's bad. This is Relke. 
if I can find it. <laughs> Perhaps all the dragons of our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us once beautiful and brave. Perhaps everything terrible is in its deepest being something that needs our love. That when we behave in ways we don't like, when others do, it's coming from a place of pain and the healing is not in the form of judgment but in the form of love. So I've talked about karuna or compassion in terms of its pure essence as being this natural response of the heart when we experience suffering in ourselves and others. And then the shadow when we respond and we're concerned but there's some judgment or pity or distancing. That's the near enemy or the shadow side. In Buddhist scriptures, the full enemy of compassion is cruelty. If compassion is that quality of listening and touching so we can really sense the suffering and respond with care, cruelty happens when we're so distant, so separate, that we no longer can respond. Some of you might have read in today's paper a more elaborate description of the services that are being cut in Washington, D.C. Some of you following all that? It's very dramatic. The one story, the one piece of that that most touched me had to do with a program in the school systems called Turning Point. And in this program, it's designed to give counseling and tutoring and health care to at-risk adolescents in the inner city, a pretty uh, needing and important population. And the whole program is being cut off. Thousands of kids that are currently getting kind of that extra amount of attention that could turn the tides from really going into just drug dealing and, and cycles of poverty versus some hope and possibility, it's being cut off. And that's not all. Other programs getting cut off, drug treatment for inmates, at-home help for families that are caring for mentally retarded. Nationally, you know it, you've been reading the papers. There's threat, threats to the funding for uh, nutritional programs for pregnant women and infants. Now, this isn't a, a political statement on we should pay for this, we shouldn't pay for that so much as can you imagine making a decision that affects a real human's life, a pregnant woman, an infant, saying, no, you're not going to have the nutrition you need if you really sense that being as a real being? It's very hard to not make compassionate decisions when we face the real human beings. It's quite easy if they're just a faceless population and we've become very accustomed to our own separate role or space in this society. The more humans really sense that we're all connected, the more our decisions by nature will be compassionate. Another example, a couple of days ago, there was an article some of you might have read about one of the tobacco lobbyists that came down with cancer. And it was, I kind of look for certain stories like that. I've seen them before. It's a lot like Lee Atwater and others, where somebody that's been in a position of power and used it in a way that created suffering. And then their own lives, they ended up suffering for some reason. You, in this case, dying of a deadly disease caused by smoking. And what happened to him was that he's felt tremendous remorse. He spent a lot of years lobbying for legislation that would encourage smoking and discouraging legislation that would get in the way from the tobacco industries being able to promote themselves. He, in his own words, said he didn't care that people were dying. He knew that tobacco created disease. He didn't care. 
So we begin to care when we experience the suffering and pain within our own beings. Then we become one of the dying people. And we're all one of the dying people. We all suffer from loneliness. We all want love. We all want to feel connected. But we don't let ourselves feel the fullness of that longing. When we do, our hearts are much more open to other people. Okay. This is Ram Das, Be Here Now. Some of you read Be Here Now. Can I just see? I'm curious. Okay. <laughs> Let's me know who's here. <laughs> Be Here Now is one of those kind of epics of a certain era. And there's a few bits of it that I, when I reread, um, are quite interesting. In this one he writes, there's a Sikh story about a holy man who gave two men each a chicken and said, go kill them where no one can see. One guy went behind the fence and killed the chicken. The other guy walked around for two days and came back with the chicken. The holy man said, you didn't kill the chicken? The guy said, well, everywhere I go, the chicken sees. <laughs> Wouldn't it be amazing if we could really sense the awareness and aliveness and life of all beings? How would we treat each other, really? If when we looked into another person's eyes, we really sensed the same awareness, the same being looking back at us. It's just, here we are. All strands of this web of life. And when we hurt one strand, we hurt all beings. So as we pay attention in that way, as we start to look and when we see someone acting in a way that causes pain, really look and say, well, what's the suffering underneath that? As we slow down and listen to ourselves some more, our circle widens. Do you know what I mean? There's more of an assumption, not just the people I work with or my family or the ones I go to church with or the friends I know, but there's more just sense of here we are, just us beings, all of us. Our hearts open. Now, that the side of compassion I'm talking about, the open-heartedness, does not mean that we don't need boundaries and balance. And I'll read you a story of the Buddha that I think illustrates that in a very good way. He said there's limits. There's limits to how much we can extend ourselves and when it's even helpful to extend ourselves. One of the Buddha's titles was the teacher of those who can be taught. Usually he brought great benefit to those around him, but this was not always the case. Once, after the monastic order had been established and many rules of conduct for monks and nuns agreed upon, fighting and powerful disagreement broke out in one of his forest monasteries. Certain of the monks accused others of having broken a rule. Others denied it and claimed their accusers were breaking the rules by making false accusations and so on and so on. When the Buddha came to speak with them, he recommended that they all apologize to one another, but his own monks ignored his advice. He tried in a number of ways to get them to listen to him and finally realized there was nothing he could do but leave them to their own consequences. So he left the unruly monks and spent a peaceful rainy season retreat far in the forest, living with the animals around him. He did what he could and no more. <coughs> Compassion is guided by wisdom. We can open our hearts, we can feel the pain of others, but that doesn't mean that we drown in it or that we extend ourselves in ways that aren't really helpful. The wise way with compassion is to be touched but not drowned. And that's important to know, that compassion is not grieving. There's nothing wrong with grieving. But compassion is that awareness 
that is touched and listens to pain but isn't lost in it, has the capacity to care but maintains some balance. Another brief story, and this is of a uh, Vipassana teacher who was studying in Calcutta and in India, and she was traveling through the dark streets of Calcutta one night on the way to the train station. For many months she had been practicing both insight meditation and loving-kindness and compassion meditations. That night she was on her way to a meditation retreat with a friend. Suddenly a man jumped on her rickshaw and tried to pull her off. She and her friend managed to push him away and still frightened they continued on to the railway station. When she told her story to her teacher, he expressed his concern and said, Oh dear, with all the loving kindness and compassion in your heart, you should have taken your umbrella and hit that man over the head. (laughs) So compassion doesn't mean that we let our bodies be hurt, necessarily. There are boundaries. I guess the most um, basic thing to end with is to say that compassion is a quality that is all within all of us, the potential of all of us, and can be conf- cultivated intentionally. It may be our habit when we encounter pain to distance, when we feel uncomfortable within ourselves to get busy, when someone else is suffering to judge in some way. But it's our capacity to cultivate a different way of responding. To go, oh, okay, suffering. And to slow down and listen and soften. Try to just soften in our body so that we can just simply be with and accept what's there. To listen to what's there and let ourselves be touched. In the traditional compassion meditation, as taught by the Buddha, there's a kind of systematic sequence where we start offering to ourselves compassion, then to someone that's very dear to us, then someone that we feel neutrally about, and then an enemy, meaning someone we have some negative feelings towards. So it's a very systematic kind of a development of heart and mind. But what I'd like to close with is is a compassion meditation that's similar to that um, that we can do together here tonight. So, if you will, to bring yourself back into alert sitting mode, (laughs) and if it helps just to stretch for a few moments and take a few deep breaths so that you can be as present as you'd like to be for this, please do so. allowing yourself to sit in a way that's comfortable, relaxed and alert. Let the breath be natural and bringing the attention to the breath in a way that gathers you and centers you. Feeling the movement of the breath in the heart and as you do relaxing with it. Feeling your heartbeat, feeling the life force within you. Feel how you treasure your own life. It matters. How you guard yourself in the face of your sorrows. Bring to mind someone close to you that you dearly love. And picture them and your caring for them. And notice how you can hold them in your heart. If 
then let yourself be aware of this being's sorrows, their measure of suffering in this life. Take a few moments, sense the suffering of this being. Feel how your heart opens naturally, moving towards them to wish them well, to extend comfort, (coughs) to share in their pain and meet it with compassion. This is a natural response of the heart. You can begin to actively wish them well in the traditional mode of this meditation by repeating the following phrases. May you be free from your pain and sorrow. May you be at peace. May you be free from your pain and sorrow. May you be at peace. Let yourself repeat that a few times while holding them in your heart of compassion. As you open to your deep caring for this person close to you, you can extend this compassion to others you know, one at a time, bringing to mind others that come naturally, that are close to you, sensing their suffering. May you be free from pain and sorrow. May you be at peace. It's a sweet feeling to offer that. Including those you might not know so well neighbors you don't know so well, people you encounter, in the heart open and soft, bringing to mind perhaps someone who's difficult for you. Again, sensing their suffering, their pain. May you be free from pain and sorrow. May you be at peace. Feel your tender-hearted connection with all of life and its creatures how your heart moves with their sorrows and holds them in compassion. Your heart can be a transformer for the sorrows of the world. We'll close with a very gentle practice of the heart whereby as you breathe in Sense that you breathe in the sorrows of all living beings. With each in-breath, let their sorrows touch your heart and turn into compassion. Try that. Breathing in the sorrows of all beings. Letting the sorrow touch you and turn to compassion. And with each out-breath, wish all living beings well. Extend your caring and merciful heart to them. Breathing in the sorrows, letting it turn to compassion, breathing out the wish or prayer for the well-being of all beings. 
you can begin to envision your heart as a purifying fire that can receive the pains of the world and transform them into the light and warmth of compassion. With every gentle in-breath over and over, let the sorrows of every form of life touch your heart. With every out-breath, over and over, extending the mercy and healing of compassion. Like the mother of the world, bring the world into your heart, inviting all beings to touch you with each breath in, embracing all beings in compassion with each breath out. We'll close the meditation as we opened with the chanting of Om, the universal sound current that connects us to each other and all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.